It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, good day, listeners, and welcome once again to the Two Jacks. We are on episode 40. We've been doing this a lot longer than that, actually, but uh, this is their combined show where we put together all matters domestic in politics and media in Australia and combine that with some world news as well. And joining me, as usual, is Hong Kong Jack. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm excellent. That's very, very good. Now, how are things in Hong Kong? Well, it's very quiet. Um, it's generally quiet this time of year because it's school holidays. We have the, um, the US and UK terms here. Um, but there's also been a, a lot of the financial services and related industries have moved out of Hong Kong, at least temporarily. You know, they've gone to Singapore and Phuket and Dubai and Bangkok and all that sort of stuff. And it's, a, it's an open question as to how many are coming back and when are they coming back? Um, but I, I was told the other day, someone who was in Shanghai went to all their usual expat haunts up there and there were not as not an expat to be seen. It was right, the yeah. only person, only expat, only white fellow on the train coming in from the airport. Well, its whole reason for being, Jack, these days is as a financial centre. So I guess the question is how much of that has moved to Singapore and to other parts of the world um, and, uh, and, and, and how much of that will endure. Uh, and it must be of concern to uh, the government of Hong Kong and, of course, uh, the, the big brother um, on the mainland. Indeed. Yep, I think that's true. I think, did you say you had a, a, a pal from Hong Kong who's moved his office to Bangkok? Uh, he's, it's more of a retirement project in his case. He's um, um, establishing himself in, in uh, Bangkok more and more, but I think he, he's, you know, he's been... He, he endured the pandemic uh, in Hong Kong, has an office there, um, and I think as he's getting a little bit older, he's thinking about moving to Bangkok and beyond in Thailand. Well, that, that's, um, that, that's a pretty common situation at the moment. People have said, well, I am getting, you know, I might be five or ten years from retirement, but if I can um, start to work from somewhere else, I'll start a little bit earlier than I t- intended to. Now, we're going to start today on a bit of Australian news, a bit of Australian history, actually, We, we and, and, and it involves a correction uh, from me. <coughs> and uh, we were talking last week in regard to uh, the ALP's national conferences uh, where, and I made the um, made mistake of saying that there was no conscription, no Australian conscription in World War II, and Curtin was able to convince the party that was the right way to go. That is not historically correct, and we want to get things absolutely correct every time. So uh, it turns out, Jack, that um, Curtin was pushing for conscription, a limited form of conscription, uh, which took place um, in in Australia uh, initially and then uh, expanded to the, uh, to the Pacific. Yeah, he'd been a strong opponent of conscription um, uh, during the, the two referenda in the First World War. Um, and uh, and right through that time, and when the uh, limited form of conscription was introduced just prior to World War Two, he had been a, um, a ferocious opponent of it in the Parliament um, uh, and had voted against it. 
uh, and that, that that conscription really meant that uh, I think it was all unmarried men uh, at 21 had to go and do three months of training and there were limited groups of people but they were and, and they were allowed to serve um, in the uh, militia um, within Australia and within Australia's territories, which from 1900-odd had included Papua um, and arguably the League of Nations Protectorate of New Guinea. Um, uh, so uh, by the time Curtin came to office, uh, there were militia, um, um, you know, including conscripts serving in Papua. Um, yes, of course. Uh, and, and, and in New Guinea. Yeah, the, the, the first lot of troops that went to um, Port Moresby and trained and, and came up against, completely overwhelmed by a highly trained combat experienced Japanese group uh, in New Guinea um, and Papua and along the Kokoda track. Uh, most of them were cons conscripts. There are even stories about people being, you know, some poor bloke wandering past the ship in Woolloomooloo and uh, getting press ganged into it, uh, they were they were they didn't even have camouflage gear, Jack. They uh, were, wouldn't have been a good time to go to Harry's Cafe to Wheels for a pie. Then, uh, no, it wouldn't have been good. There. But once they arrived there, they were completely um, uh, <coughs> under resourced. They didn't have proper uh, khaki or camouflage kit. Uh, very easy for a highly trained, uh, specialised force, Japanese force, to pick off. And of course. Um, uh, Many fled, many stood and fought, and many died. Um, but uh, once they, once those that survived got back, they were all called to muster, and uh, General Blaney called them all cowards, Jack. He did. Um, the important thing from this, from my perspective, is that uh, Curtin, like a lot of um, uh, Labor people, had been um, uh, uh, you know, an opponent, a ferocious opponent of conscription and all that sort of stuff um, outside of office. But once he got to office and had to sit across the table from um, uh, Douglas MacArthur, um, General MacArthur, and, and work out what they were going to do about the Japanese, he took a different view. And then he had to call a, um, a special conference of the Labor Party and convince his um, comrades in the Labor Party <coughs> to go along with it. And what he did was to expand um, where the conscripts could serve um, uh, from just from Australian Territory and Papua um, up through the rest of the Southwest Pacific. Um, uh, and indeed, and indeed a wider, wider um, uh, group after that. Um, uh, so, um, uh, it's a it's a, it's a it's a it's a lesson that keeps repeating through history. Um, uh, it, it's all very well Perhaps to be a, of Orcus, Jack, at yeah, the moment. All, all, all very well to be a rabid anti-American when you're sitting on the opposition benches, or you're a young firebrand uh, uh, junior ALP member. But when you um, um, in government and have to go to Washington DC and sit around the table with people, um, you no longer they they tend no longer to do that. Um, just a little bit of history, just a little bit of an aside. We're talking about uh, New Guinea as a League of Nations protectorate. Uh, uh, the, yeah, Papua was the Australian bit. That was a British yeah, colony. And, and uh, in the carve-up after World War I, uh, the League of Nations all sat around and they were going to flick um, New Guinea to Japan, Jack, until uh, Billy Hughes stepped in and said, please don't do that. 
Uh, and God only knows where we would be today if that remained the case. Yeah, because New Guinea had been German, uh, a German That's colony, right. yeah. um, and uh, and ended up be- becoming a protectorate under the um, under the control of Australia. Their first thought was to make it was to hand it over to the Japanese for governance, Jack. Hmm. Uh, and so, and uh, Billy Hughes is not everyone's favourite Labor person, but Billy Hughes. Uh, um, uh, stuck to his guns there, and uh, and uh, they moved it into, as you say, a League of Nations protectorate. Uh, the, 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 the fiery little fellow was never afraid of standing up to anybody. Yeah, uh, he might he might have had his faults, but uh, my very favourite story about Billy Hughes, Jack, while we get caught on these things, is when he attended the first Parliament, the first federal Parliament in Melbourne. In, in Spring Street there, the current Victorian Parliament was set aside to be the Federal Parliament. He was actually, and I love a little trivia question, he was a member for the uh, member of the New South Wales State Parliament and he would retain that position like a few others uh, for the next six months or so. So he was actually two members of Parliament. Um, but on the day uh, of the first sitting of the, uh, of the Australian Federal Parliament, uh, Billy... Uh, there was quite a crowd, a, a, quite a crowd of well wishes and, and people keen to see a bit of history being made. And so there was a bit of a clamour around Burke Street and uh, Billy Hughes uh, climbed up the stairs uh, full of pride to be the first one in and a copper pulled him up and <laughs> had a look at him, you know, <laughs> tiny little scunchy little man in his, in his best, in his Sunday best. And he said, where do you think you're going? And uh, Billy Hughes said, I, I, I'm a member of parliament. And the couple looked him up and down and said, oh, I'm not so sure about it. Get, get around the back. So he had to go through the tradesman's entrance to get into the parliament the first time. Um, Billy, Billy, Billy was also famous for having been in a lot of political parties because um, uh, he, he started in the Labor Party um, oh, and, yeah. and, and, and went wherever it was convenient. And he was once accused in Parliament of having been in every political party and Billy stood up and said, no, I've never been in the country party, even I have my limits. <laughs> he had a real wit to him and some of his speeches are wonderful. And there's a lovely story. We might cover it in another episode about the founding of the national capital and how Billy Hughes led a uh, desig. Uh, led a, uh, a group of parliamentarians to uh, uh, wander around the, the high country in New South Wales to, be, before they come across, came across, uh, 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 well, there was one set aside, uh, very, very high up in the uh, Alpine region and very, very cold. And Billy reported uh, back and said, we're not, we're not going there. Uh, it's, can't, you might think Canberra's cold, but this place, uh, no good at all. It's a very funny story. Anyway, um, Jack, we've got to move on to The Voice, another piece of history in the making. Uh, the West Australian uh, leads with The Voice is dead in WA. Indeed, that's what uh, a number of proponents of The Voice are telling me too. Uh, not a vote's been count, cast, of course, but uh, Western Australia and Queensland, it seems to be a problem. Uh, it does, which would that would pretty much deal it out, I think. Uh, it it means you would have to get overwhelming numbers in New South Wales and Victoria. The polling's not showing that at the moment, and you would obviously just need to lose one more state, um, and it would get knocked over regardless of, uh, of, of of who got the majority vote. But I have to tell you, Jack, we've got a letter from Baseman mm. uh, in regard to the voice. It's long, uh, and I won't give it all to you. 
but he uh, was just, it was, it was, and I, I shall read on from from our great friend, Baseman. The no campaign is playing dirty. Take a look. By the same way, I have no interest in the voice like same-sex marriage vote, which was a $220 million wank, he says. They knew the answer. Why spend the money? Just politics. I shouldn't have read that. That's not all that relevant. The voice vote will go the same way as 36 pass-fail referendums did. Gordon, a base man, it won't get up. The only referenda, uh, the doogie, he says referendums, which is acceptable, that do get up are those that have bipartisan support. Uh, only eight out of 44 referendums. Give him a bit of a history lesson then. Even if it does get up, he says, it will make not one iota of difference to the way Indigenous people live because the voice is advisory only. And this is one reason why many Aborigines are voting no. This is why I have no interest. That said, recognition in the Constitution will not mean Armageddon. So why not let them have it? So... Um, he goes on to mention no campaigner Gary John says all Aborigines should be subjected to blood tests in order to receive benefits. It's worth sort of touching on some of Gary John's nonsense. Abbott has called the voice a Trojan horse just destined to give way to a broken, divided nation. Um, I could go on, Jack. The Uluru Statement is 26 pages long. That's what Peter Credlin keeps saying about this. It is only one page, I think 400-odd words, Jack. Uh, and uh, Chris Kenny and uh, Peter Credlin have been um, uh, hammering it out uh, at Sky News and uh, on the pages of The Australian. Um, is, the, is, the, is the no campaign playing dirty? I've seen some pretty nasty stuff, to be honest. Uh, look, it's getting messy, uh, and, there, and there's always people who uh, there's people on both sides. I think who who are who are um, crossing the oh, boundary. I'm not going to both sides on this. Don't be fair. Name them. Name them. <laughs> don't be don't be uh, well, fair well, and reasonable. Well, name well, and well, shame well, these people. The well, idea, well, firstly, so so the Credlin thing was, and this was touched on Media Watch last night as we record this on the 22nd of uh, August, um, uh, that. Uh, she's throwing in what are basically minutes and notes taken around the uh, 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 the National Reconcil- Reconciliation Congress, who came up with the um, who came up with the the Uluru statement. The Uluru statement is just four hundred odd words. I think four hundred eighty nine from memory. Could be wrong, um, but. Credlin and others are saying that this is kind of thin edge of the wedge. You know, and I really hate that argument. It's used so many times when when new things are upon us. Oh, this is the thin edge of the wedge. Same-sex marriage. This is the thin edge of the wedge. Next thing, dogs and cats will be getting married, that sort of thing, you know. Um, I see some pretty miserable stuff coming from the no, from the no side, including... Including, uh, including the really nutty stuff coming from um, from Gary Johns. And unfortunately for the yes case, there is video and quite a lot of it. Um, a, a number of different occasions of leading proponents of the yes case saying that the um, uh, that the Uluru statement of the heart is more than just one page, and indeed does involve um, all or part of those twenty six pages. Now. They have now recanted that, but the video still exists. I've been on Twitter and I see a fair bit of nastiness from both sides. People calling people racist because they don't agree with yes. I think that's pretty nasty. 
Um, there's all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't agree with the vote. Um, uh, and and I, I think it's unfortunate, but that's sort of how politics is played in Australia. Yes, and perhaps I should just give a little reminder that the... Uh that the group that uh, Warren Mundine belongs to, they're getting their fundraising from uh, from a particular uh, funding body that also funded the uh, uh, one of Australia's leading neo-Nazis. So there you go. Um, uh, and none, yeah, none of this is none of this is going to matter. The voice is going to fail because it hasn't attracted anything like the sort of support it needs in the middle of Australia, in the, in the normal middle of Australia people. But the stuff on the edges isn't going to change the vote on the voice on either end. It's the stuff in the middle and the voice, the proposal, has not attracted support from that group. Well, they're campaigning at the moment, so we'll see how it goes. One thing I would say is that the sort of adoption of the voice by corporate Australia, Qantas, various major retail groups, etc., banks and what have you, is probably something that works against the voice. I mean, these are corporations, for the most part, that are not widely admired by Australians. And and these companies' adoptions of the voice probably working against it rather than for it. Certainly working against it. Um, as a, a mate WhatsApp me the other day, so I should vote yes because Qantas tells me to? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he says, yeah. and I've just spent five hours trying to fix a problem on I've the phone. Yeah, with I just had my plane cancelled, and they're not yeah. top of my <laughs> top of my uh, list of uh, favourite people. Um, yes, anyway. So moving on now, so, Jack. Uh, per- to- personally, I, I think that's all counterproductive. Yeah, I the think yes, it is, yeah. the yes campaign at the moment couldn't be running any worse. And, and they're behind. They need to run a really good campaign and they could hardly be running a worse one. Oh, I think it's early days for that. Um, um, at the look, moment, I'm saying, at, at the moment, it couldn't be going any worse. Yeah, all right. And the Labor, conf- the Labor Conference, Jack, uh, and Elbow got his own way with AUKUS. There were talks of blues, particularly from the left faction. Uh, and uh, it was indeed one of those highly choreographed um, uh, moments, but uh, Elbow got up and made a very, very stirring speech, Jack. He did. Um, uh, he actually went pretty well on the conference. We were just talking about this with John Curtin before. He had to go out there and sell something that um, uh, that he would have argued strongly against um, five or ten or fifteen years ago. Um, uh, uh, he was a well, Elbow was a young firebrand, young Labor man. You know, um, mm. uh, very anti. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, no. The Americans, he would have despised them. Yep. So he had to go out there and argue something that he previously would have disagreed with. One other interesting thing I've noticed with this is that's what they do when they're in government. When they cease to be in government, a lot of them go back to being the the young firebrand or an old firebrand. So you get Paul Keating being very pro-China these days, and he wasn't when he was Prime Minister. And you get Bob Cars, Bob Cars in um, uh, Pearls and Irritations today saying uh, uh, with a a piece, uh, Australia's biggest AUKUS AUKUS risk, America, our dangerous ally. So this is Bob Carr. Yeah, I saw that. I didn't didn't read the piece, but he was was all over Twitter yesterday saying that, you know, uh, um, doing the old Henny Penny routine, the the sky was going to fall in due to our closeness with the Americans. Um, 
so a good a good performance from Elbow and, yeah, and was Orcus good. was not a big issue. And that just leads us now to some polling. Well, it's, it's very early in the electoral cycle. Um, we've still got a good, uh, crikey, uh, 18 months, two years to go before, this, uh, before the next federal election. Um, and uh, from a piece, uh, I presume this is uh, from the uh, Sunday Telegraph, Jack, um, written by James Campbell. He goes through Redbridge survey of 1,000 voters. Labor's primary vote is substantially higher than it was at last year's federal election, while the coalition was yet to recover to where it was when Scott Morrison left office. Yeah, I, I did a deep dive on on this, and it's um, uh, the posi- Labor's position generally, and, and Redbridge have done a, um, a, uh, a whole demographic on, on this, but the numbers aren't huge, so it's all, I'm always a bit cautious about um, Well, with a 1,000, Jack, with a 1,000 you'll have a... Um, uh, You'll you'll have an, an error margin, potential error margin of three or four percent. Yeah, but but, but it, that, that error margin goes up when you start talking about cutting them up into age groups and all that sort of stuff, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah because, it does because indeed. Yeah, but there are some the interesting things here. All the same, the gender splits uh, were roughly equal at fifty six forty four percent to Labor for women and fifty five. Uh, to forty-four percent for men, so um, uh, that great uh, uh, gender divide uh, is not really a thing, according to this polling. Again, but look, if that was realised in a in a federal election, and, and uh, we have all you know, we throw in all the caveats around that, uh, Labor would would be re-elected with a hugely increased uh, margin. Uh, so yeah. tough times for the coalition. Which, and is which, it true, Jack, that, that, that the coalition has to knock off the voice in order to give itself half a chance? I mean, that's what the Liberal Party is actually saying under their well, breath. Well, well, I think they're wrong. I, I, I've always said right from the beginning, I don't think the voice has got much to do with party politics, nor does the voice, um, uh, nor is the voice going to affect party politics. I, I don't think party politics drives the voice and nor is it going to affect party politics much. Um, the Liberal Party are, are, are pretty much where you'd expect them to be. They don't quite need a miracle, but they need a hell of a hell of a lot of good luck um, for them and a, and a hell of a lot of bad luck for Labor to be a chance in the next election. All right. Um, uh, yes. I mean, I guess if we want to just quickly revisit the um, the uh, the National Conference, Jack, it is passing strange that the, the, the broad push of AUKUS and I'm not, I'm not listening so much to Bob Carr now, but the broad push of AUKUS is around nuclear-powered submarines. Yes. Uh, and uh, Australia having access to them uh, and being uh, and our continent, being our continent nation, being a, a port for them from the UK and the United States. I saw a little bit of a stat, Jack. Uh, the Chinese are, will be building, will have... 18 nuclear subs built by 2027. It's not very long at all. Not going to up pretty quickly. Um, and and um, uh, <clears throat> so it, it, this would seem to be a no-brainer to most people, but there is that sort of no, that non-nuclear pro- proliferation arm of the Labor Party that seemed to basically acquiesce around it, Jack. Well, well, there's the, the nuclear non-proliferation arm and the anti-American arm as well. Right. 
Well, Troy Bramston, who's uh, uh, one of the Australian insiders around the Labor Party, said Anthony, Elzey, uh, Anthony Albanese, my apologies, departed from Labor's 49th National Conference in Brisbane, having got his way on every policy debate, his role as factional arbiter secure, and his overall authority as party leader strengthened. Uh, <clears throat> he goes on to say he's an, a veteran of these tribal gatherings, uh, and, uh, and and managed it uh, beautifully. The conference was overall a stage-managed event. There were set-piece set speeches, flashy video presentations, and almost every motion was watered down from the pre-conference sabre-rattling drafts in the name of unity and consensus beneath the sign, Working for Australia. Couldn't have gone any better for him, really, could it? And, and Troy's sort of a, a Labor Party criminologist, so um, he goes right into this and says, look, Elbow went to the two dinners, the two factional dinners, the left dinner and the right dinner, most unusual. So he's, um, uh, Troy's our man for working out what's happening behind the eyebrows on the wall on the, on the, on the, on the, in the Kremlin. Terrific bloke too, uh, been a colleague of mine for a long time. And now um, uh, uh, on the other side, Jack... Uh, there was the CPAC, which is a very American idea. Can we at least be original about these things? The CPAC, the conservative PAC, um, uh, ran over the weekend in Australia. Uh, sorry, in Sydney, I should say. I think it's it was in a, Sydney, a, wasn't the, it? The, the, the PAC is, a, uh, is an American uh, formulation of political action uh, committee, um, yeah. and they have, they have a specific legal meaning in the United States, which means you can raise money um, uh, uh, and and support candidates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so yeah, Australia's first CPAC was held in August in 2019. Whew, it's been going for four years. Uh, and uh, founder of conservative think tank Liberty Works, Andrew Cooper, was its founder. Guest speakers included former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Oh, that'll be a beauty. Brexit campaign leader Nigel Farage. He was there in the. This is the original. And former Breitbart editor in chief Raheem Kassam. I wonder where he is these days. And New South Wales One Nation leader, Mark Latham, who isn't, as it turns out. Well, we uh, don't know yet. We'll have to well, wait Paul Pol- says, Parliament sits yeah. <laughs> I'm prepared to go with Pauline. And if Pauline says, you're not in One Nation champion, you're not in One Nation champion. Um, you, you actually said, did, was there much reporting of this? You know, I, I see this in your notes here. Well, there was a fair bit on Monday. There was a comedian who uh, got up and told lots of racist jokes, which went over like a lead balloon. Well, they went over beautifully with the with the with the CPAC audience, but it was uh, it was uh, um, pretty ordinary stuff. He 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 said, "Look, I'm just a comedian. I'm just cracking jokes." And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, he, he was one of those. He, he was trying to be part of that genre where um, you pretend to be a serious speaker. Um, but you are, um, are taking the piss. It's a, it it's was a, in character. Yes. So it's it's a it's a terrific genre if you can pull it off. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, but it's um, it's a bit of a high wire act. My favourite is a, an old pal of yours, Reese Muldoon, um, uh, um, at a rugby lunch before oh, the two thousand. He does uh, he does the rugby stuff. I, I've seen him do it. Two thousand and three rugby funny. World Cup. Yeah. And the table table next to us were full of South Africans, and he appeared. And I think Adam Spencer interviewed him, and he was Hootie Van Stratton, a, um, <laughs> uh, uh, um, 
an African rugby player and uh, it was always pretty close to the bone and the South Africans got up and left the ones next to us. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen him do it at a... But it was very funny. It was very funny, but... Oh, it is, it is very he, funny. I've seen him, but I've he, seen him he do certainly, it. He certainly did cross the line. Um, uh, we didn't cross the line. He ran over it and jumped oh, yeah. up and down on the other side, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They jumped up and down on the line. Uh, he yeah. uh, Look, I've seen him do it at a certain secret lunch club and uh, very, very funny it is too. Terrific bloke, Reese Muldoon. Haven't seen him in a long yeah, time. I, I, Must I, catch I, up with him. I think he's hanging I, around. He calls himself a boulevardier, which I love. And I think he's hanging around St Kilda at the moment. Haven't seen him for ages. Used to see him in the drum and we'd go and have uh, drinks afterwards and it was always most amusing. He's a damn fine man. Um, I, uh, I, I bumped into him in the greengrocer in Paddington one day and said, Hootie, always wanted to shake your hand. <laughs> he just chuckled away. <laughs> uh, he's a good man. He's a good man. Very funny. Very smart fellow too. Uh, Commonwealth Games, Jack. Well, uh, Dan Andrews or the... Or his deputy uh, have negotiated with various Commonwealth Games authorities and come up with a $380 million compensation fund, which well, I that was go- That was the Saturday story that the number today, I think, is Hang on, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll, we'll move on to that, Jack, but we'll, we'll, we'll get on to that. $380 million, Jack, that's fantastic for nothing, isn't it? Uh, $380 million bucks for nothing. Well, well um, it's always very hard to tell whether this is a good deal or a bad deal unless the you're on the inside. outcome, ins- according to Dan Andrews. Unless you're on the inside looking, uh, unless you're on the inside of the deal and know what was on the table, it's very hard to know whether it's good or bad deal. Well, obviously, yes, yes, you would be wanting to go through the contracts, but uh, yes. it would seem that uh, well, Dan Andrews, I heard him uh, interviewed on on the weekend, saying this was the best outcome the state could get. Um, he didn't want the state to be involved in long-running litigation uh, with the various Commonwealth Games bodies. Uh, and so they've agreed to say $380 million, and that's it, according to Dan at the presser on Saturday. That will be it. No more. And, uh, and there won't be any further claims. But, of course, there, aren't, there is money being spent. There has been money already spent. And according to some reports, might be add another $200 million to the total. Indeed. Um, and, and you can look, just so you can understand that, there probably hasn't been any soil turned over uh, in regional Victoria, but there's planning, uh, there's, uh, there's spending around planning and, and developing um, a, a plan for infrastructure uh, around where they were going to put a velodrome, they're going to chuck one in and... Uh, Bendigo, Bendigo, for example, yeah. where they were going to uh, accommodate everybody. And so th- that list can come up to perhaps not quite to $200 million, but it, but it could add significantly to the bill for a great big athletic party that's not going to happen. Um, there'll be a lot of consultants, I think, in, in that $200 million. I reckon they would be too, yes, uh, and uh, they won't be going out without their coin. The other issue, Jack, uh, of course, is what's going to happen with the Commonwealth Games? Are we, is it done? Is it cooked? We're not just talking about Victoria hosting it. Um, and, and, and further, what is what is the point of the Commonwealth Games? Oh, it's a bit of good fun, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but but when, when they start going to cities like uh, Birmingham and... Uh, uh, Etc. You kind of know they're uh, they're on the way. Exactly. 
Yeah. Well, of course, we've got the World Championships uh, in, in, in track and field at the moment um, and uh, been watching that with a great deal of interest. Um, and and, and our, our athletes have got competitions around the world. The Commonwealth Games, I, I, I cannot see it as a viable thing going forward, as a viable event going forward. Unless you had one city that was prepared to host it every four years, the same mm. city, I mean. Um, yes. And uh, I don't think anyone's putting their hand up for it. Um, so it may well be, are we looking at the last Commonwealth Games, Jack? Uh, it might have already happened. Yeah, I know. That's what I mean. Yeah, not, not this one. <laughs> we don't know if there's going to be another one. The one that we just did have, and I can't remember where it was, to be honest. Mm. Um, uh, it might have, might have been the last. Mm. Uh, will anyone shed any tears over it? I guess the only ones who shed any tears over it are sort of middling athletes who, um, who, uh, who are not going to go all that well against international competition but go, go okay against the Commonwealth. Yeah. Oh, and I think for some of the smaller countries, it's it's been something they've enjoyed, but they haven't got enough money to run it themselves. So, yeah, true enough. That would be harsh on people. Uh, look, they also, you know, it's a, there are some Commonwealth Games there, or there are some sports in the Commonwealth Games that are peculiar to the Commonwealth. Netball would be one. Lawn bowls, they do have. I think they were playing a bit of cricket. Uh, last time, Jack. Um, they certainly played cricket in a, in a, um, a Commonwealth Games in Malaysia. I think that was in T20. Yeah, they just yeah. played T20 comp, men's and women's, of course. Uh, we'll get to sport in a moment. Um, well, the Age is reporting, Jack, that the cost of living crisis drives a slump in support for urgent climate action. Fewer than half of Australians believe climate change is an urgent problem that requires immediate action. Uh, the climb from a slim majority two years ago. Jade's just wanting to fill up a little bit of space there with a story, Jack. Possibly. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the shift in percentiles from probably about 3 or 4%. I don't know that it's worthy of a story, but... Um, uh, uh, we we are hearing from other 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 uh, people who uh, perhaps have a uh, a toe in the water on this particular issue that Australia is looking at brownouts. New South Wales will have brownouts. It's all coming to hell in a handbasket, Jack. Um, what do you certainly, make of all certainly of that? in the UK, their figures of support for net zero were very high, and they're coming down. Um, and they're coming down because of the as the cost of uh, power is going up. Yeah, oh, well, look, you know that's going to happen uh, when times are tough. When times are tough in England, mainly because uh, they opted to leave the European Union. But one or two other issues as well, including the pandemic. Meanwhile, Jack, the children of politicians, um, uh, and this uh, relates to the children of a politician, uh, Nathan Albanese. Uh, he's uh, is he doing a bit of work for PwC, Jack? Uh, he he got an internship there, a, a, a two or three week paid internship. These summer internships they do all the big law firms and accounting firms do. Um, uh, I think it was Joe Aston in the Fin Review had the story that um, Elbow himself had had a conversation with um, while he was opposition leader. I think had a conversation with. 
uh, one of the now departed partners from PwC and organised for young Nathan to do an internship there. Um, Elbow's response has been that Nathan is not a public figure and this shouldn't be uh, being reported on. That's very difficult to kind of... It's a very difficult line to draw. I mean, I, I don't think children or politicians have... A, they have they, they, the children themselves make some considerable sacrifice just because mum or dad is a politician. I don't think they should be hounded um, in this way, but it's a very hard to get the media to agree with that. Well, especially Joe Aston, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 Joe's, Joe's not the only one who will report whatever he, you know, whatever he says. But, you know, I remember being on a, uh, on a chat show with, uh, with Joe Aston and, um, and I was in the business of promoting um, uh, the book Unholy Trinity at the time. And uh, uh, he's all one for scandal. And, and, uh, uh, and uh, I said, look, I'm here to talk about that. He goes, God, Jesus, I don't want to talk about pedophilia. Clerical pedophilia. Okay, fair enough. We'll leave you. We'll leave you to your made-up scandals in the fear of you. Then, yeah, um, but certainly, certainly, I, I know um, people who've grown up in in political families like that, um, and uh, it, it's pretty disruptive. For, you know, for, yeah. for young people who do grow up in those families, um, they they miss out on quite a bit. Um, they face a good deal more scrutiny than they otherwise should um, at that age, um, and it would be better, I think, if the uh, if the media backed off with that. But it's very hard to see how that can ever happen. Well, generally, the age of politicians means that the children uh, of of the well, let's say in Elbow's case, by the time they hit the, the the sort of pinnacle of their political achievements or political status. Those those uh, children are, are tend to come into adulthood and are doing adult things, getting jobs, etc. Or, so, or, or uh, they're or they're late teenagers making a few teenage mistakes. Yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, let tend to back off. But, but Nathan Albanese, well, he's the subject of Joe Aston's um, magnifying glass at the moment. I don't think you should be too worried about that. Meanwhile, Jack in the United States, well. Was I right? Was I right or not? Rico charges coming for the Trumpster uh, in the in the uh, in the state of Georgia. Um, I just saw some news this morning about him um, appearing. He actually will be arrested under Georgia law uh, and uh, and then arraigned. So uh, it's it's. I think that the difference is one of just detail only, but. Uh, <clears throat> a warrant is essentially issued for his arrest, along with uh, eighteen. Is it eighteen others, Jack? Uh, and uh, I uh, think more than that. I think it's twenty. Um, someone was being described as is it nineteen and twenty someone, in total. Yeah, yeah. Someone claimed claimed to know who um, uh, person number twenty was. So I presume there's twenty of them. Yeah, and there have been a number of other unnamed uh, who are not indicted, but uh, un- but have been um, that go unnamed in the indictment, and mm. one presumes those people have, shall we say, assisted the grand jury with their inquiries. Uh, Rudy Giuliani is uh, <laughs> person number one. There are some ones that are quite quite easy to pick out. Uh, and not that it's a secret, Giuliani is actually named in the indictment. Um, in fact, there will be, it's going to be a monstrous courtroom, Jack. They're going to need to build a bigger courtroom because, as you say, there will be 20 people there uh, under indictment. 
all all all, all, uh, all, all with through that all with process. their legal representatives. Yeah, going to be. <laughs> might have to hire out. The, might have to hire out the MCG, um, and um, and uh, so it won't be all bad. It'll be good for the lawyers. <laughs> it'll be good for the lawyers. Uh, it'll be very very good for the media. Uh, Trump has uh, Trump's legal team are seeking to. <laughs> It was a, it was a, it was a, an optimistic submission, Jack. Having the um, having the indictment uh, shuffled off to I think twenty twenty seven. I think that was his th- that was the plan. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, um, uh, the uh, uh, Fulton County DA is saying we would like this to run. I think January, isn't it? Uh, I think they asked for January. I'm not sure what they're going. What they're going yeah, to get. we'll see how that all goes. Um, so, what do you make of the RICO charges, Jack? Um, the I think it's a mistake. I think the charges, firstly, are a mistake. I think using RICO is a, um, uh, is a mistake because most people's understanding and history's understanding of RICO charges are that you, this is the charge that you use when you want to convict some person rather than investigate some crime. Um, and that's the history of RICO, and that's how a good part of the American population will view it. Um, and it's very easy to to push that from, well, why are you using RICO charges? This is just political. Well, yeah, that's the history of RICO in New York, and it is one of the great ironies of this whole process that Rudy Giuliani used RICO um, to bring down the five families in New York, yep. the La Cosa Nostra, etc. But in Georgia, it, it, it is, and it's got a somewhat different history. Um, I, I was reading a number of cases that were that were actually prosecuted under RICO uh, in Georgia, and they are not, shall we say, um, uh, of the outlaw motorcycle gang or mafia sort of prosecutions. There was one that basically related to. A, um, a a pet a cat, in fact, cat um, sort of benefit a cat, a cat society where where uh, uh, where a number of people within that group were uh, convicted of, uh, shall we say, dishonesty offences that that are all predicate offences under Georgia's RICO laws. So there is that, and they and and um, and if convicted, any of those indicted. Uh, will face a mandatory minimum five-year jail sentence, Jack. That's the law in Georgia, yes, as I understand it. I'm, I hasten to add I'm not an American lawyer. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, I, I was looking at the RICO quite a lot. I mean, it would seem to me, you know, sort of a year ago that this was where this was headed. But um, uh, will that mean that, uh, well, well it, it, there is a distinct possibility, isn't there, that uh, that a number of those indicted will flip? Uh, that's always possible. That's the idea of the RICO charges. I've never been a fan of them myself, but um, uh, because I I think what the law enforcement should do is investigate crimes, not people. Um, uh, but uh, the the history of it is that. Uh, they use the RICO charges to flip some of the people. That's true. Yeah, look, I mean, <laughs> they, they were designed to um, to knock off organised crime. And so the, the the difficulty with prosecuting, let's say, a mafia boss uh, was was that that mafia boss was always one step away from all the from all the bad stuff. 
So the idea is that you establish predicate offences that mm. one would normally associate with organised crime, drug running, gun running, murder, those sorts of things. And if you find that a number of people within that organisation have committed those offences, then you can prosecute the, uh, the, the people who run that organisation yeah. from the top down. So, and, 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 and my problem with that is a, fundam, is a fundamental one. What you're seeking to do there is to prosecute a person, not a crime. And, and that, I think, is terrible PR um, if you're a Democrat because that's what it looks like. They're seeking to prosecute Donald Trump, not prosecute a crime. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I would say that uh, these sorts of RICO laws would be very, very helpful at the moment in Sydney, and it's run down to Melbourne now where we're having almost a murder a week, a gangland murder a week. Um, it would be very, very handle, handy to have RICO-style laws in this country for that reason alone. We'll see. Um, the, 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 the RICO idea has never never found a happy spot to be exported to. It doesn't really exist anywhere else because um, uh, the civil libertarians, which I would count myself as one, don't like them. <coughs> yeah, mate, so we just have all those murders and no one worries about it. You have little kids just walking past looking at crime scenes with blood all over the street and a corpse there. Um, I would think uh, the best way to crack open that particular nut would be to look at it from a RICO-style thing because where you've got these murders in going on in Sydney, you've got someone who's supplying vehicles to them that end up getting burnt out. The current practice is we burn out two uh, and then get away in another vehicle and a third vehicle. Um, someone's got to be able to... They're lifting these Audis and Beamers and... And so that's that's part of the organisation. And then you've got others who are running the organisation who are contracting people to commit their offences. And what we've seen in the past is that you'll have a group outside the organisation who essentially freelance themselves as killers, as hired killers. Mm. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't know why they always have to have, have an Audi or a BMW. If they, were, if they pinched a white Camry... No one would take any notice of them. Well, they do it because it's fast and they yeah. need, to, need to get away. It's got to be fast. And if, if they need to do a bit of bash and crash, they're going to be a little bit better than the Camry too. Yeah. Well, personally, I drove a white Camry for years when I had a government car um, and it was great. You could park it anywhere. No one's going to steal it. You know? <laughs> I know. Look, I always play, I always, uh, shall we say, downsize of my vehicles these days. They're... A lot of money if you go crazy on these things. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, they'll, they'll prefer the, the theft of vehicles like Audis. Most of them, Jack, will be coming from overseas. Yes. The, the, you know, the, they're not being lifted here. Um, it, it, there's just too many of them for a start. With all these murders, you've got two vehicles, two stolen vehicles each time. I would say they're almost certainly being rebranded from from overseas vehicles. Anyway, we're a long way from the chunks to there. Get, if getting back to the five years get, minimum. Getting back to the politics of the of the RICO charges and the indictments generally. I was watching CNN um, uh, last night or the night before, um, and they had up the figures for um, Trump and DeSantis. He's winning that easily, but Trump and Biden, uh, yeah. and um, and the Trump Biden lineup. Um, is about one point difference on average of all the polls, right? 
um, well inside the margin for error. And four years ago, this time four years ago, Biden's lead was high single digits, low double digits. Trump's polling much, much better now um, than he was four years ago after the four indictments. CNN was saying, gee, you would have thought four indictments made a difference. And I agree, four indictments have made a difference. They have put him in a much better position. Well, I haven't started the prosecutions yet, Jack. So. No, no, I, I, and, and, and we're a long way out from I have seen some. I have seen some polling that said sort of 70, 70% of Americans, I don't know how genuine the poll is, but I saw one that was 71% of Americans believed that he was being sort of persecuted. Uh, I, I think we've got a long way to go. Yes, here, yes, yes, we do. I'm saying at the moment, the, yeah, snapshot, yeah, yeah. At, the snapshot at the I moment understand. is those, those indictments have dealt him back into the game big time. Um, uh, yeah, look, uh, as I say, we're yet to have the prosecutions here. Yes. Um, this lovely little story, where was that? I think it was in Politico, um, where uh, where Rudy uh, turned up at uh, Mar-a-Lago um, and, uh, and saying to the, the Donald, this goes back a couple of weeks, uh, mate, can you pay my legal fees, please? <laughs> please. He brought someone with you to do a bit more begging and the Trumpster, he looked at him long and hard and, had a great deal of sympathy for him, but didn't give him a cracker. Um, uh, That's part of the so. problem for Trump, by the way, that he has okay. basically rolled people to get where he is. He, he's, he's burnt people to get where he is. And, he's, uh, a, he's, he's a property developer from Queens. That's what they do. Um, um, the, we can tell that Rudy's going, doing it tough. Um, uh, he stopped using that cheap dye that runs under the TV cameras. He's going grey. Uh, yeah, he is too. Yeah, look, he's got, he's got probably bigger problems than Trump. He's got no money. He's got a, he's got, you know, I, I, you know, you know, you, if you ever hit, hit up one of those sites that says net worth of, you know, Paul McCartney or whoever it is, yeah, you look oh, up I, Giuliani, I never believe any of them. Oh, yeah. if they reckon he's got forty million stashed away, and I'm like, I don't. Think so. Well, he's he's got his apartment in New York on the market. So he's got yeah, so. that's worth about six and a half, and that'll just that's just that's just the back pay. So he's mm. got a big problem. We'll keep an eye on all of that. The multiple indictments for the Trumpster. Meanwhile, in the Ukraine, in, in, in Ukraine, um, the, the summer offensive. God, just, just just before we leave this, this interested me. You know, Trump's dodging the debates. Um, oh uh, right, yes, yeah, yeah on, on the primary debates. Um, this was from a. Um, a, a Republican who's not a Trump supporter. Just a thought experiment, he says. It's 13 months from now. The conventions are over. Biden and Trump are the, are the candidates. Biden leads by mid-single digits in most national polling, tighter in key states. Biden's doing a basement-type campaign again, and his cognitive abilities are even worse than they are today. His team announced that in defence of democracy, blah, 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 they will not do debates. The Trump campaign's response will be? Well, he's, he's, he's squibbing them now. <laughs> yes, know, I mean, that's a problem, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's squibbing them now. I look, uh, just, just, just an interesting point. And that, that may not pan out, but, you know. Um, yeah, look, he's going he's gonna to have to get involved in the debates. Um, and, well, you would think so. He can't squib it. I mean... The, the the thought of Chris Christie and, and Donald Trump going toe to toe would make it good viewing alone. Um, but uh, over as I said before, over to the Ukraine and Russia. 
The summer offensive has stalled, Jack. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Ukraine's uh, counteroffensive has stalled. And part of the reason for that is uh, is that the Russians had a great deal of time to um, uh, to secure their positions. There are landmines everywhere. Uh, it's in, it's impossible to go forward. It's one of the reasons why the Ukrainians um, requested cluster munitions. Uh, because you can clear a landmine area very quickly, uh, not perhaps all that effectively, but uh, you can do it kind of quickly that way. I do see Jack, um, uh, and I think it's the Swedes or maybe the Finns. I do apologise for being uh, for being vague, uh, but I think the Swedes. Now that I reflect a bit more. Um, and there, there will be the provision of fighters going, fighter jets going over the Ukraine, uh, which would going from further away. I think it's the Dutch and somebody else. The Dutch, um, yes, uh, yes, yeah. and I think yeah. possibly the Swedes. But anyway, uh, we are talking about F-15s. Um, yeah, even the Australians are involved in this, in, in perhaps uh, flicking uh, surplus Hornets over to the uh, over to the Ukrainians. Uh, they don't have air power. That's the part of that's a big part of the problem. Our semi-retired Hornets, that ones that are sort of pretty, pretty much we've given up on, yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, I don't know what happens to them when they're decommissioned, Jack. They'll probably just pull them all apart and keep uh, keep anything keep that's worthwhile, and the rest of it goes to the tip. Um, <coughs> but, um, uh, yeah, they, they're lacking firepower. They, they are dealing with the Russians in heavily entrenched positions with landmines all around them. So, it, yeah, there has been not very much territory claimed, new territory claimed or reclaimed. Um, uh, but I think it's still too early to be talking about stalemates here. Uh, mm. because things can change quite dramatically. It also raises the question of what the hell was going on when Prigozhin had that so-called mutiny, Jack. And there has been some reporting around that that suggests that this was, in fact, a stunt planned by Prigozhin and Putin to try to weed out some anti-Putin people within the Russian military and within uh, Prigozhin's group uh, as well. Possible. Well, given given how opaque Russia is generally, that's certainly possible. Yeah. Um, too early for a stalemate to call it a stalemate, Jack. Um, no, but I presume some people are working on um, uh, 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 you know various long term strategies as what we do if this happens. What? How do we do it? You know, if if we're going nowhere, how do we how do we deal with this in long term before we go back into winter where we can't do much anyway? Yes, indeed, and. Well, we're getting very close to that period. You know, we're late summer. We're we're late summer and they don't seem to have made any real ground at all. Um, So it's going to be a rethink. And look, we've been doing it. It's been a bit of a nostalgic show, Jack. We've looked at uh, Australian... Uh, wartime history clarified a few things there. We've, we've looked at uh, RICO prosecutions going back to the eighties, and now we're looking at Angela Merkel. She's in retirement. Jack, so what's 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 the big deal about Angela Merkel? Why can't you just let her retire in peace? Um, because it's like she never existed. 
Well, this is according to Andrew Neil, right? Yeah. No, but I, I wrote about this two weeks ago. I said the same thing. She's completely disappeared from the map. She was the dominant. She was considered to be the dominant political figure. What did the um, What did the economists call her? The indispensable European. Um, she was the real leader of the free world there for a while when Trump was president, and yet she doesn't exist at all anymore. Well, she's entitled to retire, isn't she, Jack? What, 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 what do you want from your, your what from your ex-politicians? You like, like like popes, where they they, they hang around until they die. Yeah, well, I, well, I I don't think popes should retire. I think they should do the honourable well, thing and get becoming, carried out by the, you know. Becoming a it's becoming a uh, bit of a business model for them now. You can pull their pull the pin if things are getting a bit getting a bit dark for you. But look, I have to start. I have to say, it, mate, if you are starting to agree with Andrew Neil, then maybe it's time to uh, pull up, go and have a bit of a look in the mirror, and uh, and sort yourself out. Uh, why is that? Man, why is that? Andrew Neil's one of the very best of the British journalists. You've got to be kidding me, don't you? Yeah, I mean, no, Andrew Neil, when he was running the Sunday Times, they were pushing a, a line that HIV and AIDS were separate, that no heterosexual could catch AIDS. Uh, and, and just running this sort of stuff that was completely counter to the science, Jack, the science, the scientific consensus on HIV AIDS. And he was running a series about it saying it was basically part of an entire World Health um, uh, World Health Organization attempt to to basically um, uh, establish a sort of boycott and uh, 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 sorry establish a sort of uh, uh, hegemon- hegemonic uh, organization around the world. I mean, it's absolutely. Well, well, I, I have to go back and look at that. That seems a bit unlikely. Look, he's oh, an excellent. Let, let, he's, me help, he's, yeah. let me help he, you. Out. He's, he's an excellent journalist. In any event, <laughs> really. In any I event, there is that. no point. In any event, let's talk about Angela Merkel. Is he right about Angela Merkel? Don't worry about playing the man. Play the ball. Play the argument. Uh, no, no, no. Let's uh, let's 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 just go back a little bit with. I mean, you go on with you go on with your uh, you go on with your uh, <coughs> um, with your. Uh, this with was your the conclusion on. I ca- this was the conclusion I came to before Andrew Mer- before Andrew Neil wrote it that she's been wrong about everything. She was wrong about Russia. She was wrong about energy. Um, uh, Almost wrong about immigration, all the big things that are affecting German society, she's been wrong about, and that's why they have memory holder. That's why she doesn't exist in public anymore. Andrew Neil, let's see here. During Neil's time as editor, the Sunday Times backed the campaign to falsely claim that HIV was not a cause of AIDS. In 1990, the Sunday Times serialised a book by an American right-winger who rejected the scientific consensus on the causes of AIDS and who falsely claimed that AIDS could not spread to heterosexuals. Articles and editorials in the Sunday Times, this is where he was boss, cast doubt on the scientific consensus, described HIV as a politically correct virus, interesting, about which there was a conspiracy of silence, disputed that AIDS was spreading in Africa, claimed that tests for HIV were invalid, described the HIV-AIDS treatment drug AZT as harmful and characterised the World Health Organisation as an, and I quote from Andrew Neil, empire-building AIDS organisation. 
Uh, well, he's right to be critical of the World Health, World, World Health Organization. Well, I don't think but, he's right but, to be critical of the cause of AIDS, Jack, and whether, whether well, it can actually well, express. Let me keep going. Neil was an early advocate of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, describing the case for war and regime change advanced by Tony Blair and George W. Bush as, and I quote, convincing and masterful. In 2002, Neil wrote that, that Iraq had embarked on a worldwide shopping spree to buy the technology and material needed to construct weapons of mass destruction and the missile systems needed to deliver them across great distances. That's a quote. And that, here's another quote, the suburbs of Baghdad are now dotted with secret installations, often posing as hospitals or schools, developing missile fuel bodies and guidance systems, chemical and biological warheads, and most sinister of all, I'm still quoting here, renewed attempt to develop nuclear weapons. Was he right or wrong um, about that, Jack? Uh, my response to that is, you know he's right about Angela Merkel when the best you can come up is to go back through his history. how wrong he's been on virtually every big topic. He's been a climate change, that's perhaps, perhaps why you're drawn to him. He's been a climate change denier no, for a long not. time. He's not he, actually, he actually he's, had the road to Damascus conversion, Jack, in November 2020, and he now believes climate change is real. So maybe... It, You'll uh, so, you'll fall into so fall into place all, there. Too. All that tells me he's right about Merkel he's, because the best, he's the best wrong you about everything, and then he's the right, he's right about Angela with, Merkel. He um, was wrong about something else, so he must be right about wrong about Merkel as well. Good good <laughs> argument. Good argument. No, 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 it's a terrible thing. We can catalogue how many times this guy got things wrong. I mean, including some absolutely disgraceful stuff on HIV/AIDS. And, yeah. and of course, I mean, I can keep going if you like. Would you like me? Would you yeah, like no, to hear uh, his uh, views uh, well, on Afghanistan? Well, uh, all I can say is, mate, it's a terrific argument on the Merkel thing. Well done. Anyway, uh, in the United Kingdom, we have a nurse. Yeah, it's a, a terrible this story, is a yes. very difficult case, in my view. Well, she's um, been she's been sentenced. Uh, well, in the last twelve life, hours, yes. she did not appear at her sentencing, uh, which uh, caused, I think, a fair amount of consternation among. The, uh, uh, the parents of, of the victims, um, and I believe now that the UK is looking at laws that would uh, would force people to attend their own sentencing. Yeah, look, that's superficially attractive. You say, well, I, I want them to be there to be humiliated, but how do you do that? What happens when you... Um, uh, when you drag someone into a courtroom and they scream and yell, the judge is going to send them away anyway because you can't have that in the courtroom. Um, so I, I just don't yeah, think it's a you, Like you, I would doubt that anything will come of this, only that it is a, you know, an expression of frustration yeah. uh, that she re refused to sit in the cell. She maintains, she shan't, no, not, not a moment. We are talking, of course, I should say, Lucy Letby, 33, a nurse convicted of killing five baby boys and two baby girls and, and attacking other newborns, often while she was working night shifts in 2015 and 2016. Yeah, it is one of those difficult things where um, the evidence against her is a, a little bit circumstantial. It's not very direct. Um, they, the, the police found... Um, uh, some material in her possession, some handwritten notes in which she which she confessed. She said, "I am evil, and I did this." Um, uh, but it's 
and, and because these things happened over a period of time, the evidence, um, the individual bits of evidence about what happened to each baby is a little bit unclear. Um, so, um, well, I believe some of them, but they, were are, they are troubling cases. But they're injected with oxygen to the point where their diaphragms basically blew up. Yeah. Um, uh, others were given uh, insulin, which would kill them almost immediately. Um, uh, one of the big issues around this case is that a number of health workers were concerned about her conduct and had raised this with management, with health department officials, NHS officials in the UK, in that hospital. And in, in one case, one of the doctors had to had to basically apologise to her. Um, yeah, they, they, they had her parents along and... Um, and there was an apology to her and to the parents, and I think they um, um, they gave the parents some kind of presentation. Um, uh, um, so, yeah, it was certainly mismanaged by the NHS. Um, but as well, but essentially by uh, hospital staff, hospital board at that particular yeah. hospital in Liverpool. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's but, but, it's but these these are difficult cases though because they they're not the evidence about the the the, the evidence of the, the acts and and because they happened over a period of time and they weren't well known at the time. They're um, it's not terribly clear, um, so they're difficult cases. Would be extremely difficult cases, and would rely they're hard on to they're hard to try and court. They're hard to try and court, and they're difficult for juries. But she has been convicted, got she a whole of life sentence. She um, is a mass murderer, and uh, mm. a mass murderer of the most vulnerable and, among us. A terrible, and, terrible and, story. And she deserves so, and, and so to she's, die she's, in jail. She's going to spend well an, a long time, virtually in solitary, because they won't be able to have her mixed with the general um, uh, uh, prison community. Yes, I did see a story uh, just recently about a Victorian offender um, uh, who was uh, convicted of some awful crimes against children, and he actually sued the government because he was bashed on a number of occasions. I shouldn't laugh, but uh, he was bashed on a number of occasions and got a payout. I think it's something $400,000 payout, but that money has been held in trust and will go to uh, to the families of victims as well, which just seems to me a pretty pretty good thing. We have, do have a major event coming up our way, Jack, and in fact, we will certainly be covering this when it occurs, but we've got an individual who'd been working in our childcare centres in uh, Brisbane and the Gold Coast in Sydney and then overseas and has been charged with more than 1,500 offences with 90-odd uh, victims. And again, it's one of those questions is how was this allowed to occur for so long? Uh, and um, and I believe that fellow, who cannot be named at the moment, will be named uh, when, he attends, uh, when he attends his first court hearing. Most of those offences occurred uh, in the period, so I think, 2014 to about 2017. Uh, an astonishing thing. Um, we've talked about this a little bit on the conditional release program. Gerald Ridgedale uh, confessed to another round of murders. Uh, of oh, child sex offence. confessed, I should I'll, I'll clarify that. Gerald Ridgedale, the, the former Catholic priest, confessed to another round of child sex offences, including rape. Um, uh, just recently, he uh, 
He had uh, he had a fall. It's not clear whether he had a fall in court or whether he had a fall in prison. He's stuck up in the back of Ararat. Um, he would be Australia's worst sex offender by convictions, sex offender regardless of age, with now over 70, uh, and this fellow in Queensland charged with more than 90 victims could be our next record holder. And I say that with no glee whatsoever. It's a big, big case. And there have got to be a lot of questions asked about how someone like that can be uh, can be working in childcare centres. We'll get to that as the trial gets underway, Jack. Meanwhile, um, Jack, we've got uh, wildfires in Western Canada, um, particularly in around British Columbia and um, 30,000 homes evacuated uh, in in British Columbia. There are fires probably within about 20 or 30 kilometres of Vancouver. Uh, it's a pretty grim situation. Now, I've been looking at this and I'm finding it a little bit difficult to get it confirmed, but I did see uh, Prime Minister Trudeau having a right nice old whack at Meta or Facebook um, because like uh, like the situation in Australia uh, where Google, sorry, where, sorry, where Meta or Facebook was being required uh, to basically pay for the news that it sources from news organisations like the one I work for uh, and have spat the dummy and uh, taken a lot of state, um, uh, a, a lot of state groups and NGOs off, off Facebook uh, while they're having a blue with the government. Still waiting to confirm whether this is happening right now, but Trudeau was certainly making it clear that he was, or perhaps he's looking for a bit of cover. Um, but that would be an absolute disgrace while this, uh, while this natural disaster is going on, Jack, uh, and people, uh, Canadians like Australians would be hitting their Facebook looking for information and not being able to find it from government or government authorities and, and related related groups. Uh, yes, it would be. I mean, uh, it's amazing the proportion of news people get from um, social media these days, whether it be Facebook or Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days. Yeah, uh, it's hard to believe. We're going to check it out. We will clarify with you next week. I, I just caught... Uh, Trudeau speaking um, this morning, uh, our time, about the lack of support that they were getting from Meta and that Meta had basically indicating that Meta had switched off a lot of government services, Facebook accounts, those sorts of things, if they had done so, either before or during uh, a, a major national emergency, particularly in the Western side of Canada, that would be an absolute disgrace. And uh, I could think, think of some civil charges and maybe some criminal ones that might follow. Um, we'll let yeah, you know as I'm, we I'm, go I'm, on. I mean, in Australian terms, everyone used to rely on the ABC radio to get that information. But, of course, yeah. these days they've got a phone with them all the time. So they get a lot of it, not just from the radio, but from... Uh, right, uh, yeah, from, from Facebook. And, of course, it did happen in Australia when the Morrison government um, sought to uh, uh, bring Meta or Facebook in uh, to come up, come up with some sort of arrangement on how they were going to pay for news, they were not paying for it at all, uh, and how they were going to pay for it. And the response from Meta, the initial response was to basically turn the government off and turn, um, uh, shall we say, NGOs off as well, 
um, things like suicide prevention and Facebook uh, sites that were closed to, to the Australian public, absolutely disgraceful corporate behaviour. Um, um, but uh, if this actually did occur during a, uh, a, a natural disaster that's sweeping through Western Canada at the moment, I tell you what, there'll be people seething about this. So we will let you know, listeners, about this. Moving on to sport, Jack, the FIFA World Cup has finished um, and uh, Spain were clearly the better side and, and beat England one zip. Um, they were a very, very good side. Did you see any of the podium hijinks, Jack? No, I didn't. I watched a fair bit of the uh, of the match um, or almost to the end um, and, and um, uh, I thought Spain were clearly better. I mean, yeah, going were. back to the, um, the Wednesday night game, um, uh, England, England were much better than Australia. I think Australia were. Were on top on top for about no, 25, okay. 25 minutes of the 90. Though Australia was on top, but the rest of it was all England. Um, but the uh, the Spaniards were terrific and deserved the win. Deserved the win. And then afterwards in the... <laughs> in, in, indeed, I thought that was the best performance I saw in the whole tournament with Spain. Yeah, oh, definitely. They had, I mean, the, the goal itself was... Just a precision a shot, wasn't it? I mean, there was a defender there, you know, one foot there either either way. Either the goalkeeper gets it or a defender gets it. Just a marvellous shot at goal. Um, it wasn't wasn't quite the goal of the tournament. That was very definitely, I think, uh, Sam Kerr's oh, in the Sam, semi. Sam Kerr's um, uh, even, even my from even my half. English even my English friends were saying. Well, look, the defenders didn't do anything really wrong. The keeper didn't do anything really wrong. But what can you do about that? Yeah, it was a cracker, absolute cracking goal. Um, the question, the question. Well, look, I'll just go back to the podium, Jack, and the Spanish FIFA or Spanish sort of the president of uh, soccer in in Spain was. Um, Kissing women on the lips as they came up to get that, and uh, one of the athletes uh, who'd received a medallion for for winning the World Cup said, "Yeah, she's a little bit uncomfortable about it, but didn't bother too much." I must say, we, <laughs> I was watching it with a mate. We're going, "Who is this bloke?" Because he was basically going the deep embrace, a bit of dry mm. humping on the podium. It was it was not a good look. You know, excitable fellow, he obviously mm. was. Um, yeah, but anyway. there was there was there was vision of him when the goal was scored, uh, um, uh, grabbing his you know uh, when he's in the stand, grabbing his cross. Look, um, to be fair, to be a senior soccer soccer official, there's no character test. We know that we've known that for a long time. <laughs> it's not, it, uh, you'll tend to have a few quid. You'll be flying around the world first class. Uh, and uh, you're not extremely, you're not very accountable in the end. No. Uh, um, yeah, it was a funny thing. It, uh, when I, I was watching with a mate, I go, who is this bike? I actually thought it was uh, uh, the FIFA boss, in fact, I know. But because um, uh, <laughs> no, it was, like, no, it was the, Span- was the Span- Spanish fella. It was definitely the Spanish. That's what I thought at first. I went, gee whiz, he's, he's very excitable. Just before we leave the, the football, um, uh, a, a mate said to me, I said to Maria, are you going to go, come down and watch a, a, an hour of the third uh, versus fourth playoff on the Saturday night? Yeah. And uh, and he says, no, nah, mate, no, 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 no. Third versus fourth playoff, it's like dancing with your sister. You know, it can be fun, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but I'm not sure what the television audiences were there or are indeed for the final, but it's been a, a fantastic tournament. Let's not forget, Jack, that England voted against Australia and New Zealand to host the uh, host the uh, FIFA World Cup here. 
So uh, in the end, uh, a bit of uh, kismet uh, came their way. Um, <clears throat> I guess the bigger issue now with these stunning numbers, um, I think 9 million people watching the semi-final. Um, obviously, it will lead to some, 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 some spikes in participation around soccer. We talked about this a bit last week. But soccer has pretty high participation amongst uh, children. Uh, then it sort of drops off as, as uh, adulthood kicks in. Um, unlike other sports that tend to retain players into adulthood. Um, not, not, not just players, not just players, but fans. Um, uh, so, um, uh, so you know, you, you get those uh, junior rugby programs and AFL Auskick programs. They don't all play when they get to their late teens and early 20s, but they stay fans. Soccer has huge participation numbers, but they don't even stay fans once they get to um, late teens and 20s. Yeah, look, there's, there's probably pretty good reasons for that. Um, uh, the A-League competition, the men's competition, um, is still um, still carrying a lot of sort of ethnic divisions w- with it too. So it's not the sort of place you, you'd take the kids to, to watch a game. Um, it's not you know, quite as bad with, as Foots, Footscray JUST and Melbourne Croatia uh, lining up, but uh, it's not much better. Well, I, fo- I follow a, I follow a site on Instagram just called Hooligans, and it, and, and it basically shows the, the, the behaviour of hooligans. Most of it in Europe, a fair bit of it in the UK, and every now and then, Melbourne Victory pop up, Jack or Western Sydney, Western Sydney Wanderers, and it's an it's an interesting thing to talk about. Is soccer football, the sort of game that nurtures this stuff. I mean, we understand the tribalism. We understand why West Ham have got the biggest hooligans or Millwall have got the biggest hooligans, um, biggest group of hooligans, often very, very violent men and so forth. We understand the tribal nature of it. But is the game itself driving this kind of behaviour? You know, you've got probably 10 shots of goal before you get one. It's a game that that relies a lot on tension and drama uh, and not all that high scoring. Oh, I think there's, there's always been an argument that's the case, that, 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 that it, it, you're more likely to... Well, you always have been more likely to get that sort of trouble at a soccer game than a rugby game or an AFL game. Okay, so the broader issue, and we'll just do with this quickly, um, Peter Dutton, win, lose or draw, when we did have that very silly... Discussion was silly on the on the part of Albanese and his office to talk about a public holiday. It was really really dumb, in my opinion. It was really, really bad political communications because obviously it could only happen if they won two more games, mm-hmm. and which they and they lost the first one. Um, so it put a fair bit of pressure on them, completely unnecessarily. And that's how Elbo should have should have dealt with it. If it was a thought bubble from Chris Minns or someone else, just say, well, why don't we not put a lot of pressure on the girls? Why don't we just let things happen and we'll see how we're going to celebrate it afterwards? Peter Dutton counted by $250 million in funding for sport. He got. I couldn't believe he was allowed to get away with that in the press. And people were just, well, how are you going to allocate the money? Because, you know... You've got a bit of history here, champion. And and, uh, and none of those questions got asked. In the end, the government has set aside $200 million for the development of women's sport. And very sensibly, and bearing in mind 
Rorts Rhymes with Sports, uh, they've set up a, a committee independent of government to allocate those funds. So good stuff. We really do need to get some positives beyond this euphoria of the tournament, get get some get some more women and girls playing in sport and kids generally can only be a good thing. Uh, what about the statue that uh, 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 Miss Palaszczuk is proposing for the Matildas? Good Lord, I watched that. I watched some of that, you know, celebration of the Matilda stuff, and she was at shrieking level. Um, it was. I don't know. I didn't hear about this. Well, who's going to be the subject of the um, of the statue? Is it Kerr? Uh, who have we got? Uh, my wife is watching this on the television. She said, "Jack, have a look at this." Um, uh, they're talking about this huge crowd there. Unfortunately, they had a helicopter up in the air um, and it was pretty sparsely attended. It was all a bit, and, you know, there were, I think Elbow was there briefly, Palaszczuk was shrieking. It was all a bit, let's tap into this. Let's exploit the euphoria mm. uh, around the tournament. And, yeah, I, I really, and, then, and you know, then you'll get, under a different set of circumstances, you'll get a politician turn around to you and say, hey, we must never mix sport with politics. <laughs> yeah. all right. it, it, it all looked a bit shameless to me. And it, the was idea of sh- oh, it was very and, shameless. And Palestine was and, and, really the, good. And, and the idea of... Um, lie down with a bex. The idea of putting up a statue for a side that did very well but finished fourth, fourth yeah. um, uh, is ridiculous. Terrific, terrific achievement. Everyone should be very proud of what yeah, they did. But, and, but not and, a it was, and it was a lovely tournament. Didn't Australia and New Zealand put on a terrific tournament? They and it's did. something that we can do. Maybe not the Commonwealth Games, just not the Commonwealth Games. We need a bigger room. Uh, anyway, Jack and the AFL, uh, oh, the Blues, mate. How are the Blues going? The Blues are now nine in a row. Had a, a bit of a get out of jail. We're down 40 points uh, to uh, uh, to um, uh, to the Gold Coast Suns, who now have a new coach. Uh, not a bad side, the Gold Coast Suns. Got out of the blocks early. Uh, Carlton pegged them back. And uh, Charlie Kuno kicked four goals in the second quarter, kicked five for the match. And uh, well, Charlie Charlie Kuno probably pegged, the pegged best the, pegged the Suns best back. forward going around the comp at the moment, Jack. Uh, yeah, well, he pegged the, he pegged the Suns back all on his own, pretty much. <laughs> uh, He's done uh, it a few times this season, and people are talking about Brownlow's. I'd probably, you know, I've seen every Carlton game. I'd, I'd have him down for probably fourteen or fifteen votes at this stage. Um, it's a breakout year for him. Um, he's gone from being a very talented bloke with a, a bit unfulfilled because of injury to um, uh, he's now got a bit of swagger, um, a bit of Wayne Carey about him now. Yeah, but nice young bloke too. You know, you see him in the in the rooms after the game. He's got the nephew and the niece on the shoulders and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Very well-centred bloke. Uh, look, Carlton going really well. Um, and uh, we've really got it down to a possible nine to make the eight, the Western Bulldogs. What happened there, Jack? They got beaten by the Eagles. What's going on there? Um, uh, as as uh, I, I saw a comment um, uh, on my WhatsApp the, on WhatsApp the other day, um, the Bulldogs have got uh, probably three or four are going to make all Australian. Um, uh, um, uh, four out of the f- four out of the forty squad will make all Australian squad of forty, mm-hmm. um, uh, and yet they are not even in the eight. 
Not me, eh? Getting beaten by Hawthorne, getting beaten by the West Coast Eagles. Who else did a low, low, they, they, lowly they, they, side? They, they've probably got the Brownlow medal favourite now um, uh, in the Yeah, box. I, I, look, Marcus Bonapelli is, is a great footballer. I saw him uh, against the Tigers just a few weeks ago. He basically, uh, you can put the three votes down there. He was head and shoulders the best man on the ground. Hell, hell of a footballer. But what is going and, on there? And, 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 and with all that talent, they're not even in the, not even in the eight. So there's something and, going and, and wrong. Then the, and then the Bombers, who whose season on the line... Turn up against West Coast, sorry, uh, against uh, the GWS Giants and get beaten by 120, 30 points? What yeah, the hell I, I, is I mean, the, I mean, the Giants are going really well. It's got to they be are sad. going well, but they're not yeah. going that well. So no. so you'd have to say overall the, just the, the Bombers didn't turn up. So we've got basically, I, I, I believe the, 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 the current eight will stay. Carlton should remain fifth. Um, St Kilda play the Brisbane Lions in Brisbane, which uh, and they're going all right too, the Saints. But uh, but uh, the trip to uh, Brisbane, no one's been able to win there this season, and a uh, bit of a graveyard for a lot of sides. So you would think not. And Australia, and, and of course uh, Carlton play the Giants, and that'll be a ripping game, which is the last one of the season. Um, uh, and then, of course. Meanwhile, we, meanwhile, the Swans snuck across the line. Uh, a pretty, a pretty poor decision from the uh, from the goal umpire. He's been given his marching, but he's been suspended for the rest of the season. I think. What? How do you fix that, Jack? I mean, you've got to say to goal umpires, if there's any doubt, you go upstairs late in the game. I think that's reasonable, isn't it? Or like, perhaps even late in a quarter. Yeah, if, could, if, could, if you're it, after it, a set look, time, look just say, "Right, you've got to, you've got to challenge, you've got to send it up." It, it could be. Look, he, he he called it straight away. It's clearly clearly how he saw it. Um, uh, but but, <laughs> but, but, but it umpires wasn't. umpires are humans. They make mistakes. Oh, as of course well, they do. As well as the players do. Of course they do. But um, but. And it did, I and mean, you know, the commentators was, oh, it's hit the top of the padding. But then from the angle, it, it missed it by some margin. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm, I watch all these replays and I still really can't tell, to be quite honest. So, oh, mate, it didn't, um, mate, it missed, it missed the post by half a metre. So it was a genuine well, it, mistake. It, it, it certainly didn't hit the post. Whether it hit the padding, I couldn't tell from the, from the replays, but I'm no expert at this. Um, but certainly we, um, umpires get things wrong just like the players do. Yeah, but I think in the case of something like that, then they, they really should just implement a rule where if it's late in a quarter or indeed in a match, uh, that if there is a goal that is even vaguely uh, con- contentious uh, or, or a score that's contentious, um, uh, then uh, it should be an automatic uh, review. But uh, but I think part of the problem is there was a, there was one that your blokes benefited from the week before. No, it wasn't a benefit. The man touched the ball. Jackets are behind. It's not a benefit. <laughs> well, the, uh, the 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 technology isn't all that good, is what I'm saying. Yeah, um, they do need but, to imp- improve yeah. that stuff too. But uh, look, I've I mean, got to say, I've got to say, as 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 humour goes, it, it absolutely cracked me up because there are Adelaide people. Adelaide Crows fans, some of them are absolute nuts. I was reading well, they can, they, Have you ever, ever been over there? They can be a bit excitable. <laughs> they can be a bit excitable. But one like who is, and I won't name him, who is, uh, who is a, um, a, a, a social commentator of notes in the media, he was talking about having that goal umpire's bank account examined. 
Um, <laughs> in the wake of and put him on an audit. Oh, God, yeah, I laughed, and, yeah, I laughed because, and laughed and laughed. See you later, Craze. See, Your season is over. So you think about that for half a second, you go, so I'm going to give this like 5000 bucks or something, just in case he's adjudicating on a close, uh, <laughs> uh, on a close decision. It seems a little unlikely, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you notice, know, look, if you were going to really do it, you wouldn't just pop it in his bank account, um, yeah, you know, because yeah. there's going to be a trail there. Well, what else have we got in sport, Jack? We haven't looked at the rugby league. We'll cover that uh, next week because uh, uh, we're getting very, very close to the finals there. The Warriors going beautifully at the moment. It's a very odd uh, very odd uh, results again for Cam. The Raiders well, the, did the, not show up against the Melbourne Storm and they're kind of pretenders. Uh, the, the, but the, the, overall, it looks like the Panthers are the best side in it. But uh, what have we got? The, the Rugby World, the Rugby Union World Cup is coming in. Well, not coming our way, or coming our ways to survive television in France. Jack, uh, with the French, probably the best side in it, the Irish after that. I've been having a bit of fun with some English fans because English England aren't going all that well, to be quite honest. And um, you know how they were carrying on about the spirit of cricket in the middle of the Ashes series there. Yeah. Uh, well, there. Um, uh, Which is a movable five, feast according to how it suits yeah. them, where, how they're yeah, going yeah. at the time. Uh, and, and their 5 eighth got um, um, uh, pinged for a pretty nasty um, uh, head-on, um, head-high oh, tackle. I did see that. I did see that. And yeah. uh, Owen Farrell. Um, uh, and... Uh, he was looking at facing a couple of weeks or a few weeks, which would have a few games, which would have seen him miss at least the opening part of the World Cup tournament. Right. But they lawyered up and they got him <laughs> off. Spirit of rugby, spirit of rugby. Did they have a drink? Did they have a drink after the game, though? No, probably not. Probably yeah. didn't. And that's been confirmed now that they uh, actually did shut. Shut the dressing room after the Ashes and did not invite the Australians in. The Australians were hanging around. It's almost like they'd been stood up for a date. They were yeah. just hanging around waiting waiting for the cork and we come in and have a drink. Not allowed. Not allowed. Yeah. You have breached the spirit of cricket as we understand it and we don't want to drink with you. Terrible, terrible people. All right. Well, that takes us out unless you've got something weird and wonderful. I, 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 Jack. I have. Uh, how are you going with the, with the cost of living and your grocery bills? Yeah, Jack. Oh well, you know, just uh, you know, <laughs> if anything's optional, it's the fruit and veg has to go. Yeah, well, I agree with that. Well, there's a couple in Maryland who've reduced their grocery bill to fifty dollars a week um, yeah. uh, because they they they've got a little plot of land. They grow a few plants, and you've got to treat plants like people. They say, you know? um, but Talk they also live on They also live on fresh. But on the plants they grow and fresh roadkill. Oh yeah, well there you go. Uh, the, 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 the fellow, ch- the chap says, one deer could be sixty to one hundred pounds of meat. That's about sixty thousand calories, and that's pretty good. He says. Yeah. So I recommend to you Aussies get up early in the morning because a lot of the roadkill happens overnight, and you want it fresh. I do recall after uh, after a bushfire season, a uh, bit of a hermit. Uh, was finding food very hard to come across. True story, and, and he found a koala that had uh, wasn't hadn't been too badly incinerated, and he gave it a gave it a, gave it a go. 
<laughs> that didn't work. Then he put it through, put some, uh, cut some fillets off and uh, put them through the mincer. And uh, he said, no, nah, it's still no good. So, so koalas, you can forget about them. You forget about you them. cannot oh, eat stick, them. Stick with the kangaroos. The other thing, the, 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 the best giggle I had all week, um, and I, we shouldn't be laughing about this, but there is a uh, tropical storm. Um, uh, on the uh, west coast of the United States. Oh, it's actually uh, very bad. Yes, causing a bit of climate change, uh, and uh, causing a bit of havoc. It um, is, and they and they named the tropical storm Hillary. Yes, they have. Yes, yes. And uh, and as one wag on Twitter said, well, one thing for sure is we know it won't get to Wisconsin. <laughs> very very good. I must also said uh, most my. my also add that these are computer-generated names. Yes, um, I know. So there's, no, there's, there's just a little bit of coincidence going on here. Because Hillary has been uh, accused of many, many crimes by, uh, shall we say, people in the fringe politics that uh, are really bizarre and very, very strange. Um, um, so anyway, Jack, that takes us out. Thank you very much for your time today. And uh, we want to thank our listeners, uh, and particularly Baseman. We were glad to get you into the uh, get, glad to get you into the program today, Baseman. Well done. Uh, keep uh, keep those submissions coming, and of course that goes the same for all of our listeners. Drop us a line if you have a question, comment, criticism, etc. And you get hold of me uh, on Twitter uh, on at Jack the Insider. My DMs are always open, and you can get Jack on his Substack. Uh, hongkongjack.substack.com. There you go. Thank you, listeners. We'll take you out now and see you next week. Bye.